everybody. This is Spur of the Moment from Lasso Digital. I'm Annika Pelkey. On this episode of Spur of the Moment, I had a fantastic conversation with Emily Wheeland. Working her way up from shelter assistant to CEO at the Dolores Project, she's learned a ton in the nonprofit sector. We discussed the intersection of factors that contribute to homelessness and poverty in our community, as well as her tips for fellow leaders in the nonprofit space. My name is Emily Whelan. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm the CEO here at the Dolores Project. We're located in West Denver. We've been around 23 years, and we provide housing-focused extended stay shelter for women, transgender, and non-binary folks. And we operate a permanent supportive housing building for individuals who have a disability, were formerly chronically homeless, and are earning under 30% of the area median income, which is about 18 thousand dollars a year. And then we also operate a continued care program for people that have moved, have transitioned from shelter into permanent housing out in the community. And so we provide them ongoing case management to help with their housing stability after they've resolved from homelessness. I'd love to hear a bit more about your career. You have some exciting career news that you're welcome to share. But yeah, if you'd like to give an overview of your career and what kind of led you to your position today, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I think I took a little bit of an unusual path in the nonprofit world to get where I am. A lot of the my background and the first decade of my sort of professional career was in for-profit and managing like high-end grocery stores. I've done a lot of like food service, customer service, (laughs) management of different like cafes and coffee shops and all of that sort of stuff. I love customer service. I love working with the general public. I like taking care of people. I'm a big foodie. I love feeding people. And so I really did that. And then a lot of my sort of volunteerism was around food justice and homelessness issues and volunteering with folks experiencing homelessness. And I really started to feel as I was like approaching 30 that while I loved my company and the people that I worked with, I really felt like I wanted to have more of an impact and do work that felt a little more meaningful in the world. And so when I was 33, I moved to Denver and I knew that I sort of wanted to transition into nonprofit work. I didn't have any experience. I knew I had been a manager for over a decade and I had a lot of like transferable leadership skills, but not a lot of knowledge about the nonprofit sector. And so my sort of foot in the door was to manage the kitchen at the gathering place, which is a day center for women and children and trans folks who are experiencing homelessness or poverty. And so I worked there for a year, feeding hundreds of people every day and sort of managing the volunteer groups, which was the staff of (laughs) the kitchen with myself. And that's a really amazing organization. I had a really great time. And then I ended up going back to graduate school and I needed a job that worked with my school schedule. And so I was, my job at the gathering place was full-time Monday through Friday, like 7 a.m. to 3 or 4 p.m. And that wasn't going to work. And so I saw this job advertised for the Dolores Projects for weekend overnight shifts. I'd never worked overnights before, but I thought it would, I would be able to study while I was working. And so I got a job at Dolores in 2015 I just had my eight-year anniversary here as a weekend overnight shelter assistant. And I worked like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights for a couple years and then gradually sort of moved off of overnights 
into more day shifts. And then I went into like a lead role and then shelter manager. And then the past four years, I've been the program director. Love to see it. As someone that has worked a lot in food service, I definitely see like a tunnel straight to nonprofit. <laughs> with Yeah. All this. <laughs> I mean, I, there's so many like wonderful transferable skills that, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of food service is actually like really like waiting tables. It's like really skilled work in some ways mm-hmm. that I think doesn't get the credit it deserves. And I think really set me up for one, having like a diehard work ethic, having really amazing customer service skills, which I think really serves me with donors in the nonprofit arena. And then just knowing how to like work in ever-changing, ambiguous environments and being able to like switch priorities at the drop of a hat and just like manage millions of balls in the air at once. So, yeah. And you mentioned that you went to grad school. You were in grad school when you started at the Dolores Project. What was that in? Yeah, I actually went to seminary. Um, I originally went to get my master's of divinity and was going to go into Unitarian Universalist parish ministry and sort of decided, one, I didn't want to be just a church administrator. I think often people go into ministry wanting to accompany people, which is what I'm doing at Dolores, but you end up really just managing this business of a church and not getting to do the really caretaking part of what draws people to ministry. And I was really loving my work at Dolores. And I just felt like, I think I want to stay in nonprofit. And so I changed my degree to program to a master's of social justice and ethics. One, because it was a year shorter, a year cheaper. (laughs) And at this point, I'd been in grad school for three years and just wanted to be done. And when I started, had imagined that Dolores would be just kind of a place to spend my time while I was in school. And then I would go on to do whatever it was I was supposed to be doing in the world. But the longer I stayed here, the more I just felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I want to be and feel called to be. And so I think a lot of folks thought once I graduated, I would leave, but it just never happened. Here I am (laughs) four years later. So yeah, that is so incredible. I I can't believe that like, start to now where you are today. That's love to see it. (laughs) Sweet. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Dolores Project. You mentioned a couple of the services you guys provide, but would you mind giving a little bit more of an overview and how it might be different from traditional housing programs or shelters? Yeah. So Dolores was established in the winter of 2000, renamed after a woman named Dolores Big Boy, who's a Lakota Sioux woman who experienced homelessness off and on throughout her life. She had some physical disabilities for some significant health issues. She actually ended up passing away due to complications from diabetes. She, from what we've been told, was very well known and respected and liked sort of among the community of women experiencing homelessness in Denver and shelter or service providers working with women experiencing homelessness. She was really known for wanting to take care of everyone around her. And her family has told us that in the moments when she was housed, sometimes that they would come to visit her and she would have like 10 people staying in her apartment. Like there'd be somebody on the couch, somebody in her bed, and she'd be like sleeping under the kitchen table. And so her mentality was really just to take care of as many people as she could with whatever she had. 
which often then led to her losing her housing because she wasn't supposed to have all those people in her apartment. But she just felt like the right thing to do was to be like hospitable and caretaking for others. And so she died in the winter of in the fall of 1999. And we opened in the winter of 2000 in her name and just really those values of hospitality and deep care for other people are sort of the things that have carried us through from then till now and that we still hold really dear. And we originally started out as just a winter only shelter in a house off of the Platte River. And it was like the situation where, you know, when it was the evening time, there was a few bedrooms and then they would like push the dining room table to the corner and like roll out mats and just kind of put people wherever we could fit them. And then in 2006, the city and some other funders and partners gave Dolores this old building in West Denver and sort of the Colfax and federal area that had previously been like a family solution center. And we added a big dormitory onto the back of it and moved in. And at that point, Dolores became a year round overnight only shelter for women. You know, we've always served transgender women and transgender folks, but we only really started acknowledging that and adding that into our mission statement and talking about that really publicly, I don't know, that maybe six or seven years ago when we updated our mission statement. We've seen sort of a year-over-year increase in that population of LGBTQ folks in our community since that point. Um, And currently, that's about 20% of our population, 80% identify as female. So we, the city block that we're on, we had our old shelter and then we had a little house that we used as storage and a parking lot. And then there was an alley and across the alley was a small family apartment building with just like six or eight units, I think. And it was run by Rocky Mountain Communities. And it was kind of old and falling apart. They were getting ready to tear it down as people's leases were expiring. They were moving them into other properties that they owned. And so the story goes that one day their CEO, Dick Taft, at the time came over and knocked on our door and said, hey, you know, we're thinking about tearing our building down. Would you be interested in potentially partnering with us in developing something on this property? And so Dolores Project actually owned most of the land, most of the city block, but didn't really have any capital. RMC had a little capital, but less land. And so in 2014 or 15, we started sort of planning and visioning what has now become a royal village. And we moved out of our building here in May of 2017. We were sheltered in sort of some temporary spaces. We were like the homeless homeless shelter for a few years and bumped around town with our guests. And then we moved back in here in March of 2019. We opened the shelter the first week of March. And then our brand new supportive housing program, which is directly above our shelter, opened two weeks later, the end of March. So on site at Arroyo Village, we have the building is kind of a big C shape. It takes up the whole city block with a courtyard in the middle. One whole wing is run by the Dolores Project. So the first floor is the shelter. We serve 50 women, trans and non-binary folks. And it's a 24-7 shelter model where we offer on-site housing case management and behavioral health services. And then the three stories above us are supportive housing program, which is called the Dolores Apartments. And we also have 24-7 staff case management and behavioral health on-site for those folks as well. And then the other two-thirds of a rural village is managed by Rocky Mountain Communities, who are a partner in the project. And they oversee 95, one, two, and three-bedroom apartments for folks that are making 30 to 50% of the AM of the area median income. And so the goal with the whole project was to pro- was to create this sort of continuum of shelter and housing on one property in a way that near as we could find didn't exist anywhere else. 
else in the country. Since then, there's lots of other projects that are sort of coming up that are modeling themselves after a royal village. And it's we've gotten to see a lot of people move from shelter upstairs into supportive housing and a few folks move into workforce housing. So I would say the thing, there's a few things that differentiate us as a homeless service provider from other providers. I think a lot of the ways that we're able to engage with the folks we serve is because our community is smaller, because quality of services is really more important than the quantity of folks we can serve, because we do know that there are other providers serving large quantities of folks in in one shelter space. So we serve 50 folks currently, and I would say that we operate more like a community. So when folks come in, they get assigned a bed. They have a pretty significant amount of locked storage space. They have laundry on site. We provide linens for them. We have life skills programming. We have counseling. We have rehousing case management. We have groups, lots of social activities, community events. A supportive community heals trauma. And so while folks are with us, we want to be the most hospitable, safe, supportive, comfortable environment that people can experience so that that they can start healing from the trauma of homelessness and any trauma they have may have had from before that as soon as they walk in our door, basically. And so we're able to have a depth of relationship and understanding of the lives of the folks we're serving that I would say is more significant than you see in most shelter environments, specifically because a lot of shelters are warehousing hundreds of people in one space and they just don't have the staffing capacity or the resources to lean in to the depth that we're able to. And I would say all of those values that sort of came from Dolores Big Boy about really treating other people with respect and dignity, valuing, you know, being strengths-based, valuing people's contributions as individuals, letting them sort of self-determine what their goals and path to housing are going to look like. Those are really important in our shelter community and, and in our supportive housing. We have on-site supportive services. Every resident has case management available to them. Whether they want to take advantage of that or not is up to them. Although we have, we do the majority of our residents are really engaged. We have lots of just like community engagement programming. So folks feel like they do have a community. I think that transition from, from homelessness to housing can actually be really traumatic for people in a way that the general public doesn't understand when you're used to being unsheltered or living in a sheltered environment where a lot of your needs, your basic needs are provided for you, meals, laundry, hygiene supplies. And you also have a built-in community of friends and neighbors and staff support people that are there at any moment that you might need them to suddenly move into like an apartment with four walls around you. It's quiet. There's no one there. If you're having a crisis, there's no one to talk to. It can be really, really traumatic for folks. And so supportive housing is really designed for individuals who would really struggle to stay housed on their own without those sort of like 24-7 wraparound services to help them stay housed. Our shelter model really shifted with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Before that, we were a weekly overnight shelter. So folks would call on Monday morning. They would put their name in a lottery. If they got a bed, they would have it for the week. And then every Monday, the process would start all over again. The first week in April of 2019, all of the shelters in the city of Denver went 24-7, trying to reduce exposure to COVID, really, to the 
the folks we're serving, many of whom have significant medical issues going on. Homeless folks in general, their health is, you know, they're aged far beyond what someone of a similar age that's always been housed. They have more health issues and complications. And so really trying to provide an environment where they're not having to go out and get on the bus, go to day centers, be really interacting with the general public every day. And since that time, even though now most in our community are vaccinated and things are feeling safer, we've there's been this sort of citywide, potentially nationally understanding of what we already knew but couldn't previously afford of that 24-7 programming is really more healthy for the individual, more supportive and less traumatic for someone experiencing homelessness. And so thankfully, our government partners have sort of stepped up and provided the funding for us and all of the other shelters in Denver to be able to stay 24-7. And so with that transition to 24-7 sheltering, we've transitioned our model of shelter from one of what was previously called housing readiness to housing first. So rather than trying to address all the barriers and issues and problems that someone may have while they're sheltering with us, which means they could be with us for years at a time, we've transitioned to this housing first model where the goal is to use housing as the primary intervention for homelessness. And the goal is to shrink someone's length of homelessness as short as possible. What that means is often moving folks into housing who have some maybe significant physical health challenges, mental health challenges, substance use issues, maybe some serious financial or debt concerns, things like that. And that then those things all get addressed once they're into housing rather than when they're in a shelter environment. It sounds like your model is like provides a lot more dignity and agency that some folks might not see in other models. So I really love to hear that. As someone with a degree in psychology who, like many people, has experienced my share of mental health struggles, something that really stands out to me about your organization is the fact that you offer behavioral health services to guests. So would you mind speaking to the importance of that and how you identified that need? Yeah, so it's something that we have always known that the folks we serve really could benefit from. And it was really a matter of resources that we couldn't, you know, we're a nonprofit, like we really couldn't afford to have therapeutic services on site. And so we really did our best to provide really robust training for our staff around trauma-informed care and harm reduction and all these things that would help them engage with people who had significant trauma as best they could. But didn't have necessarily any clinical expertise or have the time to really sit down and chat one-on-one with people for an extended length of time because they're managing shelter operations. And so we did, we got a grant from the Colorado Health Foundation about three years ago to hire a behavioral health counselor. And so we did hire, we did hire someone who was here for a few years, but the, it it was not a licensed clinician. And I think that the level of, mental health challenges and trauma experiences that the community of people we're serving have is so significant that I think a clinician and somebody that has a significant amount of therapeutic experience we realized is really crucial. And so that was one sort of learning piece. The other piece was in 2020, we started our rehousing and continued care program 
with the help of an influx of funds from the CARES Act. At that point, that's when we were able to build this sort of housing-focused team with on-site case managers and a housing navigator, and then this continued care program where we have continued care case managers who provide aftercare for folks once they move from shelter into housing so that there was somebody kind of staying with them throughout that first year of housing to make sure that they were maintaining stability. And what we were what we really saw in that first year and continue to see is that a transition, as I mentioned, from shelter to housing, even though we know the goal is to house people, can be initially very traumatic for folks. And if we're using, a, if we're really staying true to a housing first philosophy, if people have untreated mental health issues that aren't being addressed when they're in shelter, guess what? Those are still happening when they're in housing. And oftentimes that's leading to issues with neighbors, with landlords, things that could contribute to housing instability. And so while our case managers recently, our shelter manager and I several months ago met with the executive director or CEO from Lotus House Shelter, which is the largest women's shelter in the country. It's in Miami. They serve about 500 women and children each night. And they have an 85% housing success rate, which in the shelter world is like unheard of. And so we were like, how on earth do you do that? And they said, really, it all comes down to behavioral health services on site in their shelter. And that once they leaned into providing really robust mental health care for the folks they were serving, they started to see a great increase in housing stability and housing success rates among their population. A shelter of our size and most shelters having like clinical staff on site is pretty unusual. Although I'm seeing increased interest among other providers of being able to provide that just because homelessness in and of itself is a really traumatic experience. And so we know that 100% of the people coming through our door have experienced trauma. We also know that statistically people experiencing homelessness have a much higher ACE score, which stands for adverse childhood experiences. And that's things like folks that grew up in a home where there was physical or sexual abuse, where there was divorce, where there was substance use, or a parent or caretaker was incarcerated, things like that. And so statistically folks experiencing homelessness have a much more intense or significant trauma history even before homelessness than the general population. And so it makes sense that it's a population that if you're really trying to permanently resolve someone's homelessness, just putting them in a house is not going to, you know, is not going to resolve all of the concerns they have that may have contributed to homelessness in the first place and really provide them the foundation for like a stable and independent future. You mentioned in your 2020 and 2021 impact report that 38% of clients that you serve identified as BIPOC and 13% were transgender and non-binary, which I'm sure are similar to their percentages today. Would you speak to some of the links you've seen between homelessness and being a member of a march group? Yeah, I mean, I think just like those percentages you share, they're still fairly common. I think our percentage of trans and non-binary folks has increased a little bit. We're up near 20% now, and I think about 35% of our clients identify as people of color, which is, especially for people of color, much higher percentage than they are in the general population in the city of Denver. And so, you know, what is going on there, right? And one of the things that a lot of researchers have studied and really proven is that 
that specific races and race and gender identity can contribute to greater increase in homelessness. And that's really a result of like systemic and institutional racism and oppression that exists. So if we think about something like, for example, like the history of redlining in the city of Denver, that really denied African-American individuals the ability for home ownership, which is, you know, the number one way to build wealth, (laughs) thus contributing to greater rates of poverty among that community. Like there's a lot of historical things like that and things that are ongoing, like with our criminal justice system, school to prison pipeline, just a lot of different systems contributing. When we think about queer and trans folks or LGBTQ folks, you know, there's a higher rate of homelessness among those folks and among queer youth in particular, specifically because of rejection of family and youth or young adults losing supportive housing or supportive community because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So I think among those populations in particular, we try to be mindful of Dolores of like, how are we serving those folks, creating a welcoming and inclusive space that celebrates and welcomes all, you know, of those folks and everyone else's identities, and then really paying attention to making sure that, you know, if 38% of our guests identify as BIPOC, making sure that at least 38 or more percent of the folks that are transitioning from shelter into permanent housing also identify as BIPOC. So making sure that the folks that our housing outcomes are reflecting our shelter community, not necessarily the percentage that those folks may make up of the general population. What kind of things do you think our system needs to do to better address these issues surrounding homelessness? And how can we better support folks experiencing homelessness in Denver? Oh, there's so much I could say. Racism. I mean, like, all these systems of oppressionisms. I mean, there's so much there's so much that contributes. And I think just I think one of the things that I want to try to do in my role is to increase the conversation among the general public around why are people homeless? But all of that being said, I think, you know, if we're talking about housing, like housing is is the best solution. The major barrier that we see and why we built a royal village is that there's not enough affordable housing. And what we were seeing in our shelter is that people were coming in, they were finding stability, they were qualifying for disability or finding an employ- employment and becoming financially stable and still weren't able to afford rent in the city of Denver. And that was, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. And now just what we've seen during the pandemic, the rates of rental increase and in cost of housing housing has just skyrocketed. What I would love to see and what could be a huge solution is leaning into more models of housing that are below 50% of the area median income, so which is $42,000 a year. So somebody making $42,000 or less a year, and there's just not a lot of options for folks that are the working poor that don't need supportive housing that aren't disabled and have low income because of disability. And so, you know, there's some different models like co-housing or SRO models that are for people that don't need support services, but also can't pay a lot in rent that don't really exist in the city of Denver. And so I think I would love to see our providers and our city partners and officials thinking about leaning into how to build additional types of housing for those folks in the 30 to 50 of the area median income range, short of that sort of 20 to 40, $45,000 a year income. There's really nothing for folks within that range. 
So affordable housing, affordable housing, affordable housing, I guess is what I would say. I would love to hear a little bit about, you mentioned a lot of misconceptions and how that does kind of contribute to the homelessness issues that we have in our country. Would you mind kind of speaking to how your organization addresses those misconceptions in your communications and development? Yeah, I think this is an area of opportunity for us and one that I'm really interested and passionate about that as an organization, I actually don't think historically we've been super strong at. You know, there is a lot of misconception among the general public of folks that don't know or work with people who are experiencing homelessness or haven't ever known anybody that's experienced it, that, you know, homelessness is a symptom of all of these other inequitable systems and the people that are experiencing are the victim of these symptoms. Well, yes, maybe some of them may have made poor choices or used substances. Blaming them for the circumstance is not going to do anything to solve the issue. And so I think one of the greatest barriers that we see, and so I guess all that is to say, I think really the homelessness system right now and our government officials are starting to all agree on the fact that like housing is the solution housing is how we end homelessness, but I still don't see a larger conversation of going upstream of like what's causing it to begin with and how do we how do we focus our solutions upstream so that people aren't falling into homelessness to begin with to then have to find housing for them. So we're making progress, I think for sure. And we see officials being more invested in finding solutions to the problem, investing into to homelessness support services and housing. But I think we're not going to eliminate homelessness altogether unless we're able to go upstream and look at those bigger systems and structures that are contributing to economic inequity to begin with. Just like all of these folks sort of end up in the shelter system because there's nowhere else for them to go. And I think one of the things that I'm really passionate about is just storytelling. I think that you can change minds by influencing hearts. And so one of the things we've been trying to lean into the past six months or so is just telling stories about the people, some stories of the people we serve, whether it's, you know, in a email to donors or on social media or however we're planning our annual fundraising event and we're going to have either a video or a live conversation with some of the folks that have been former shelter guests that are now housed with us because I think it's really easy for all of us it's human nature to like make assumptions about how people are in the circumstances they are but when you hear people actually tell their own stories that can really change hearts and minds I think the other piece that I think for people people's hearts that aren't changed, another tactic or strategy that can be used that I would like to see us do some education publicly around as an organization is just the cost of of homelessness and how much cheaper it is to taxpayers to just put someone in a house. I mean, we at Dolores Project, we spend almost six figures every two weeks on our payroll to serve you know, 50 folks in shelter, 40 in supportive housing, and 40 in continued care. So we're spending a huge amount of dollars, 20% of them, those come from the city, a lot of other from federal and state funding. It's taxpayer dollars that's paying for people to not, to not only have folks in a shelter, which is hugely expensive and takes a lot of resources, but they're also then regularly using 
EMS emergency services because they don't have primary care and Denver Health. They're they're in and out of the justice system and incarceration. If somebody doesn't feel like, well, they need to just get a job, we're not going to just give them a house. Why should we just give someone an apartment? I think we can also use the, the argument of how expensive it is to let folks be homeless. And so I think just like a, there's a, a huge opportunity for just education of the general public and Colorado Coalition for the Homeless does some sort of monthly educational events that are open to the public. And I would love to see Dolores lean in to something like that in the future. So we're kind of like spinning our wheels, kind of thinking about that right now, about how can we be more of a voice of advocacy and education in the Denver community for the folks that we serve and just for helping change the narrative in the general public around who's homeless and why and what are the causes and the solutions. Kind of in that same vein, I know that like paying a living wage is something closely related to housing issues and the nonprofit sector is notorious for underpaying its workers. I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on that. I've, I've recently saw like a TikTok on Salary Transparency Street and they asked someone that oversaw a homeless program for a ton of nonprofits in LA how much they made and It was six figures, and a lot of people in the comments were really upset about that. But in all of the other videos where people were making six figures, like nobody would bat an eye. They'd just like be interested in that career. So I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on that and paying competitive or living wages in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, I could write a book on this. It's hard. It's hard. I think there's so many, there's so many ways to talk about this. I mean, I would say in general, like uh, agree the nonprofit industrial complex in general pays like very low wages compared to for-profit businesses. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one of the things that I think about in our our profession in human services is that we're a caretaking profession. And if you look at all other caretaking professions, like nursing and teaching and CNAs and like all of those things are historically women's work and historically low paid. And so I think there's some like unspoken cultural things going on there in nonprofit and human services in particular, some associations like being made there about who's doing the work and how valued they and the work are. I think the other thing is like, we are a little bit at the hands of the funders. And unfortunately, a lot of them get to decide where that money goes and what they want to fund. And understandably, often they want that to go to programs and services as it should. You know, that's where the majority of our funding should go. But it can be tricky to find funders who are comfortable giving money to just go to general operations and trust the organization to use those as they see fit. Your HR people, all of these positions that are necessary to support the work of the frontline staff, who really is the ones that are having mission impact and doing the work that you're telling the community you're doing. You know, when I started at the Dolores Project, I made twelve fifteen an hour. It's like one quarter of what I was making in my career before I came to Denver. So I don't think it's necessarily helpful to be criticizing the folks that are making the most. What we want to figure out is like, how do we pay everyone more? Mm-hmm. And, and by just paying the people at the top less, you know, if you take 
30,000 off my salary, say, and you spread it among our frontline staff, of which there's 25 or 30, that's maybe a thousand more dollars. It's not going to go very far. And so it's not, it's not necessarily issue of like inequity within organizations of like who at the top is making the most and the bottom is making the least. It's like, it's a whole systemic issue of like nonprofit in general, not being funded to pay the wages that we should pay and not, I think the greater world, not valuing the work specifically in human services. It's of a caretaking variety as much as it should be valued. I think. As we're wrapping up, it seems like work culture is a huge priority at your organization. And now that you're secured at the very top, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about why that is and how you plan to kind of feed into that and allow that work culture to grow. Yeah, that is one of my sort of main priorities and it always has been in my leadership of like, I just really feel like culture is everything. I think when I was, you know, in the, in the for-profit arena, I really could see how a healthy and positive work culture resulted in happy employees, which resulted in them having really amazing customer service and then you having great profits. And I really feel like the recipe in nonprofit is not a lot different, only instead of trying to make profit or having mission impact. And I think that it really starts with like, you know, I feel like the ultimate goal and this is really idealistic, but that a workplace should be really life giving and rejuvenating rather than life sucking and, and human services can, and homeless services in particular, be just because of the vicarious trauma that we can't help but happen can be really life sucking if you let it. And so I think just a recognition for me and for folks in leadership at Dolores that our staff has really hard jobs and that all of their work takes a significant amount of skill and a significant significant amount of emotional investment and work. And so trying to create a culture where people feel really taken care of and honored and appreciated and celebrated. So we try to like have fun. We have parties a couple times a year, have laughter and joy and a sense of levity for people amid the difficulty and stress and vicarious trauma of our work paying them as well as you can I think because that's a value statement to them you know what you pay people is what they feel like you think they're worth and so doing your best in that arena you know if you're doing all those things and you have a healthy work culture that always also means less turnover and turnover is so expensive it's so destabilizing it's so stressful for the staff that's left in the lurch and so I think really being constantly being aware of turnover and trying to do whatever you can to promote stability and opportunities for a growth for folks internally. So we try to provide a lot of opportunities for professional development and in general have a culture oriented around learning and personal and professional growth. And then for us, I think always just being mindful of your values and just making sure that all the decisions that we're making are in line with those values that we talked about earlier and, and that are with the goal of our mission in mind ultimately, and using those things to kind of guide the choices we're making. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up, maybe sharing how folks can find and support the Dolores Project? Yeah, we're on the socials. (laughs) 
I just hired someone much younger than me to manage it. So hopefully they'll be improving. I'm loving um, it. <laughs> you can find we're Dolores Project on LinkedIn and on Instagram and Facebook. Like and follow us. Our website is just thedoloresproject.org. And yeah, we're going to be having a big event on May 18th of this year at Space Gallery. It's called Planting Possibility and will be a spring benefit fundraiser. So keep your eyes peeled for media and save the dates coming out about that. And hope to see lots of folks there. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated this. moment is produced by lasso digital a marketing and fundraising agency with the goal of helping nonprofits raise more funds spread their vision and achieve their mission our show is directed by annika pelkey edited by katie janner and our music is by sean hess to find more episodes of spur of the moment or to find out more about lasso check out our website lassodigital.co